This is the Ben Ryan Podcast. Now for today's show, I have two guests. The first, Martin Bouchait, I have known and worked alongside in a Nike research and innovation group for the last five years. Until recently, he was head of performance at Paris Saint-Germain Football Club and from the outside at least one of the best jobs in football. Martin's now working for Kitman Labs, a company using analytics research to help sports teams find out what works and what doesn't, and also in a part-time capacity at Lille Football Club. And he's also just released a book called Egos, which talks about all things ego and really is an ego playbook for high-performance workplaces. His co-writer, George Perry, is my other guest. George has worked for the US Navy as an officer, and now coaches in track and field in the United States. And you'll hear in this conversation how Ego was integral to the ultimate path that George took with regard to this line of work. Through their collective experiences, they are authorities to talk about Ego. And we also discuss the stories and thoughts of many of the world-class practitioners that have also contributed to the book and that come from some of the most well-known sports teams and organisations on the planet. I too was delighted to be able to contribute some of my experiences around the ego, both mine and others. But we started the conversation with me asking both of them how they would firstly describe what ego is, with George kicking things off. I look at ego as how we view ourselves and how we put ourselves in the context of the world around us. So it is comparative. There is an aspect where we are comparing ourselves to others. And that's where I think ego can kind of go on those runaway trains that we encounter so much in, our, in the book and in our lives. But more than anything, it's comparing your sense of self to external reality, to the objective world around you. When you look at yourself and say, I am this, I have achieved that, I may have fallen short on this other thing, how does that stack up to reality? And a lot of times we look to other people because we want them to give us that external check, that external validation. But part of what's necessary, particularly in the sort of high performance environments we talk about, is that there aren't too many people who have been there who can give us that necessary check. And there are going to be even fewer people who will give it to us because they may have their own ulterior motives and what they want us to think about ourselves in relation to them and in relation to the world. And that's why so much of what we try to communicate to the readers in the book is developing the ability to conduct a true reality check for yourself, because that's where the healthy ego is. Okay, so we are not on this show, we're not going to be talking about um, coming into any, either of you guys' organizations where there'll be a big sign that will say, leave your ego at the door or no egos here. You see it as potentially something that can be of value if it's harnessed correctly. It's absolutely a value. But you know, as practitioners, we understand that anything we do in the training room, we can do wrong. We can do strength training wrong. We can do speed training wrong. Anything that can make you better can also make you worse if it's done improperly. And I think that's something that in our line of work, we know that particularly. And Martin, what do you say is your definition of ego? Is it very similar? Of course, but maybe with my words, and I would probably go to something a bit more, a picture of it in terms of, I would say it's more like an energy that you have inside of you that can be very, very powerful and go a little bit in all direction that most of the time we don't really control because we're missing this awareness and this control. So, and that comes through, of course, the structure of the book with uh, all the positives and everything you can do thanks to it, but also all the pro problems that you can have because of it. For me, the fact that we, we miss this understanding and we don't really know what it is, where it's come from, makes it even easier to, to, appre to apprehend and manage. Uh, but I like the term of, of, of energy. But this energy is linked to yourself, to your personality, as, as you, you are. Egos is the, official, is the official title of the book, but it really gets under the skin of ego, not just looking at what ego is, but how the practical ideas to how you can, can meet egos that, that you come with, your own ego and the lessons that you've learned around that. What's the reason that the book's come out and what was... You know, that process of writing the book, what were your biggest takeaways once you finished the book on your ego? The why is actually 
about understanding better and having answers to be better as a, as as person overall. So the why is really, I would say, coming from the difficulties I had myself confronting to difficult situation where I felt that my 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 ego myself I was in yeah, difficult situation and I couldn't really handle it. So I realized that often it was not really helping me achieving what I wanted because it was sometimes too oversensitive sometimes. So the why of the book is I need to understand better how to deal with mine, but also then understanding how to deal with others. And all the takeaways are the learnings from those 10 chapters that, of course, uh, let's say personally, I would have never managed to reach this point of understanding that I have now if I didn't have the chance to hear, hear it from, from you guys. And I always realized that most of the people that accepted to, to respond to, to those questions were much more wider, wiser than I am and I was, because most of people had very, very in-depth thoughts on, and they had very, very good responses, like that showed that they already thought about that. They already been at another level of reflection that I did not, I didn't reach. So that was also very, very, not surprising, but I did not expect uh, practitioners uh, from the locker room or the physio room to have such uh, an understanding of it. It's pretty, that was pretty, pretty incredible. Yeah, I think it's one of those subject areas where uh, you don't necessarily get to have any hard, solid um, study around it. It's that exp- it's wrapped into experiences, understanding ego and your list of practitioners that you've had as to, to help collaborate in this book. You know, they're, they're world class, a lot of them. And I certainly think the book is going to give me lots of um, key messages on how you can see an ego coming. Would that be fair to say? Have you can it give you an insight as a young practitioner that's listened to this podcast? They'd be able to see how they can start to see that some of the decisions that this coach is making is by his ego, not by critical decision making. One thing that you just said, Ben, is really one of the key takeaways, and it's it's interesting because it seems like it should be so obvious, but you know, it needs to be said. We do all have egos, and I think a lot of the messaging that we have in our culture, what we heard with a lot of our contributors in our books, a lot of the early conversations I had with Martin as he and I got to know each other last year was there's this tendency to want to fight the ego like, like it's a virus or it's this alien invader that just kind of shows up one day and now you're trying to get rid of it. It's like, no, we all have one. It's part of our psychological constructs. So to a certain extent, you always have to make peace with that fact before you can make something productive out of that fact. So yes, we, we do all have egos and, and what we do with them and how we r- relate to others is a key part of going through life and you know going through the journey of this book as definitely something that young practitioners need to keep in mind. In terms of how they assess the actions of others, say it's a, you know, an overbearing head coach or a, a domineering department head, well, they're, they're, all of our motivations are going to be impelled by ego for better or worse, because the ego has that drive aspect to it. it it's, it's back there with the ambition in our, in our psychology and our psyche. The question is, is it well-formed? Is the ego driving in pursuit of positive goals? You know, the coach who's making poor decisions, who's chasing the wrong metrics, of course he's being driven by his ego. His ego is just driving him to really dumb, self-destructive and team-destructive places. The coach trying to do the good thing is also being driven by his ego. He's just being driven down a better road in pursuit of more rational values and a more productive way of getting there. So it's not a ego there, you know, he has ego that's bad. He doesn't have ego that's good. It's no, we all have this thing. How are we all using it? And towards what toward what ends are we using it? Some of that leans on to one of the stories that you you mentioned early on in the book, George, about when you were an athletics coach and those discussions you had with the old hands. Do you mind elaborating on that? Because I thought both of you had some very pertinent stories at the beginning of the book, and I'd love to hear this one. So I came into sports in general very much through the back door. Uh, I, you know, I was never an athlete in high school or college. After college, I surprised everyone who has ever known me by joining the United States Navy, and I did five years as a naval officer. Then I went to law school. Then I dropped out of law school. And then I got into sports performance. 
So I got into this field much later than most of my peers of the same age. And so I really wanted to put myself on a crash course to catch up. I was in my early 30s when most people in the field have five to 10 years of experience. And I'm just getting started with a decent amount of ambition and a decent amount of you know, experience in other fields and other aspects of life. So I'm always willing to learn from other people around me, people who have been more experienced. And especially within athletics in the United States, the business side of the sport, the commercial side of the sport is pretty appalling. We have great coaches over here. You know, the, the athletic side of our sport is in very good shape. The commercial side of it in America, obviously, is pretty poor. Our athletes, they're all part-timers. A League Two footballer in England makes more than an Olympic, uh, has higher name recognition than an Olympic athlete in track and field in America. That was a sort of issue I was confronting because I, I wanted... My goal when I started was to be able to make a living as an athletics coach on my own terms. And there was no structure to do that for me. So I was like, well, I'm going to have to start taking up the business side of things and working on that structure myself. So I started talking to people who were on the business side of the sport, who were you know, involved in one aspect or another, the financial side of the sport, the, the, the business, I'll put in, you know, in uh, quotation marks, uh, commercial side of the sport. And you know, I just wanted to learn. They had been around longer. They knew more than I did. And they had answers I didn't have. I had no problem learning from them. But it didn't take me long through my own experiences, my own studies, getting to know other people in the wider world. And I started to realize, well, these people have a lot of domain-specific knowledge. And one thing I recognize off the bat is that this specific domain in this sport is exactly what the problem is. So if I'm learning from them, am I learning the wrong lessons? And as I started asking outside of the domain and finding, you know, in particular, like, you know, one or two people who have been long-term mentors for me, I started to realize, wow, the experienced old hands to a large extent are the problem. And it was an, I've never laughed for self-confidence, but it, it, there were a couple of really jarring incidents where then I then had to say, all right, you may not know everything, but for what you want to accomplish, you know more than them, despite their experience, despite their stature and their status and their prestige. And I think those aspects are really important to come back to the book because in sports performance, we put so much emphasis on stature and status and prestige. You know, a quote that we absolutely love is from Jesus Olmo when he says, the logo hides everything. And that is so true in this industry. And Despite the fact that I was a little bit more worldly than most other people coming into the line of work because I was, you know, in my early to mid 30s, I got blinded by the logo. Oh, my God, you're on you work for this company and you've been on these foundations and you're on those boards. Wow. But then I realized that's logo. That's prestige. The ability wasn't there. And being able to recognize that I needed to attach myself and pursue my ambitions not through logo but through substance is what kind of drove how I selected my mentors, how I selected the next path I would go on, where I would go to continue learning, which you know continues to this day. But you know, it's not because Martin worked for PSG. It's because he talked to Martin for 10 minutes and he knows everything. His logo may have got me in the door because I, I know of him by reputation, but I mean, Martin backs it up. You back it up. I hope, you know, the book backs it up for he and I, because there's only so much that you can ride that status and prestige train before you run the risk of somebody coming along calling you out. If you don't have, if you don't have the chops to back it up, you don't have a floor beneath you. I get that. And Martin, I wanted to ask you about a story that you had with your assistant coach. But one thing that before that, that um, came into my head was the Dunning-Kruger effect twinned with the, the badge hides everything. So have you ever seen that when young coaches that go to get big clubs and then you have the Dunning-Kruger effect, which for, well, for um, a, lot, a lot of our listeners, they might not understand what that means. Have you seen that at the beginning kind of blow up to become a big problem? Definitely. But I think when you mentioned like a coach joining a new club, or I think it happens, it's easier to see that with uh, the sports science. Because sports science versus coaching, you know, you have this idea of I've been to the uni, I have a degree, I have a PhD. So I'm more educated than those coaches. And I think you see that way, way more. 
in this specific population. Coming, I know everything about uh, load monitoring and nutrition, so they should do that because I got my master and I know everything. And this is, of course, the best way to shoot yourself a bullet in the foot is you start like this because you may have some type of knowledge, but you definitely don't have experience when you finish uni. You don't have understanding of the context. So all the things that actually matter even more, you don't have them. So you start, and that's the dunning curve of the curve. You start with a very, very high level of confidence in your knowledge and your ability. You, you think you know. And it's only when you are confronted to, to the, the reality of, of sports, of working with athletes and coaches, that you start to understand that everything you, you thought you knew is unlikely to be as simple as you thought to be applied and, and so on. And then your confidence just decreases as you get more experience. And the, the end of this curve actually goes back up until the end. But that, that's the beauty that always makes me laugh is that you gain confidence again by the end, but not confidence in the, what you have to do, but confident, you are more confident that you don't know what to do. And this is, this is so true. Once you have had 10, 15, 20 years in, in this world, you just know how much you don't know. And almost create the imposter syndrome, right? You almost feel at the end. That you, exactly. That, yeah. It's, um, and where are you on that now, Martin? Are you at the end of that, do you think? But again, it would be maybe, I, I would seem too confident saying that I know where I am because, you know, but I feel that I'm very, very, I, I'm more on the right side knowing that I don't know than on the left side knowing that I think I know for sure. But it's just incredible how every time you get to a new job or a new experience that you change your mind about everything. So even from my job in Paris now to my job through Kidman Lab, now working back um, partially with another football team, I changed so much my practices, my vision, the stuff I thought I could never do in Paris. Now we're doing it in Lille, for example. And because of the context, again, always the context. So it's just impossible to, to, to really have a clear, a, a clear vision of the things you should do or not, the things that are possible or not because of the importance of, uh, of context. And also uh, science evolves also, if you don't bring back the, the science into that, because I still always think that on my, if I talk about me, the science actually maybe was the, the start of the, the, the problem is that on one side, science can be po poorly perceived from the, the, the more the field practitioners because they don't really know, they don't see the, the connection, there's always this gap and, and so on. But because you have the science, as I said, you just believe that you know, you know, so this is a real entry point. So the problem is that since the science self-corrects as well, you might be completely clear on a topic because it has been science proven, it's been demonstrated. But then the year after, you have a new study that just shows the converse. So you thought you knew because of, because of the science, but in the end, you have to change your mind again. How do you then manage to be honest and open enough with a coach that you just told one thing one year and then told another and another year and not allow ego to keep things quiet to protect yourself true story uh, with uh, Laurent Blanc for example when I was working with him in Paris he was always kind of always not taking the the piece if I can say but like ah okay you have a new study okay what's new again okay very good so like but still very interested respectful listening but then he said one day, he said, the problem I have with you is that you're always so convinced about your opinions because they are backed by science that, okay, we have to trust you because it looks like you're, you know what you're talking about. But because the year after you come with another, a new finding in the end, why should I trust you now? Because you're going to come with a new finding next year. And this is pretty, pretty difficult in your situation. So again, you have to, and that's back to, uncertainty when you provide results you don't provide the average but you provide the standard deviation that comes with it you provide the uncertainty about everything so same it's not like this study has shown that we should do that but based on those results in this population it might be helpful you know like it's uh it's the, the, the way you you word things so that if it does not end up as it was planned you say okay i told you it was uh, the tendency not it was not the the, the proper truth and uh, it's a way to, again, step a little bit back in terms of the, the confidence you put when you affirm things. 
And do you remember that story that that was in the book just uh, in front of George's George's one around an assistant coach that just didn't agree with anything that you wanted to do? This overall situation is probably one of the driver of the book, actually. So, yeah, so that's when you have to start to call colleagues or peers and say, okay, that's the start. That's the start of the book. Guys, how do you manage to handle that when you've written all those papers, when everyone in, in, in the industry kind of consider what you've been doing and these guys coming and say, no, 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 no. How do you handle that first yourself? But also, how do we move on? Because it's not only about accepting, accepting and dealing with your proper, proper situation, but you still, have, you still have a job to do. You still have things to, you still need to move on. So how do you how do you handle that? That's that's very difficult on the practical side of the things, but also I think what I mentioned in the book with this story is that it was an incredible drive for me to research more, in a sense to proving wrong, and it's been incredibly yeah highly motivational. And uh, we just did more research, more 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 studies, more investigation, and each time it was a way to verify if our disagreement could be in a way, we could find, like, put the research in between like to, to try to, to, to validate one or the other approach. And lucky me, most of the time, it was validating my vision. So that was helping me to close the loop in, in this uh, confidence and reboosting my own ego as well. So that's been pretty, pretty interesting process. And we're, we're at the moment we're talking about how to deal with egos that you come across and maybe identify early but if I throw back to George a question on how do you deal with your own ego and have you you know when did you first start to understand that your ego was getting involved in decisions that was affecting you know how good you could be as a practitioner in a way I might be the wrong person to ask that question to because I don't feel like I've ever had you know a struggle with my ego I think that's kind of what makes Marin and I such a unique partnership for this book is that we've come at it in ver from very different perspectives, um, from very different individual philosophies. And one thing I've learned in the course of, of this project is very different cultures. Working on this has really showed me just how American I am. So I've, I've always viewed my ego as being a core component of of who I am and of the ambitions and drives that I've brought to every aspect of my life from you know school to my careers and my personal relationships. So I've never viewed it as a struggle. I've viewed it more as just you know optimizing, you know, in the way I try to, you know, want to be the best at everything or at least have the best within myself of everything that I can. I've never felt that my ego quote gets in the way because. I think I've always directed my ego towards well-formed goals. And when, and when I haven't, I've been able to make a good decision. You know, one thing that I know, one thing that I know upsets my parents is when I have law school dropout in my professional bios, it's on the back of our book. And I'm waiting to hear from my mom about that in a couple of weeks. But I think that's, I think that's like a useful little, the reason I include it so often is because I followed my, my ego powered my ambitions into one high performance environment, the study of law, and then presumably the, the practice of law. It took me less than my first year to realize that was a big mistake. Was it a surplus of ego or surfeit of ego or just the right amount that I said, nope, I am dropping out of law school because I'm also at this exact same time discovering the field of sports performance and I'm correcting the course. I admitted a huge mistake and I then embarked on at least for, you know, in, in the situation I was in, a much less, quote, prestigious line of work. I mean, lawyers at a top 50 law school get a lot more prestige and social credit than a sports performance coach, unless you can attach yourself to like, you know, an NFL team. So I look at that as, as a good study. And my ego led me in to a bad situation. I recognize that my ego led me out of a bad situation. But was it the one making those decisions or just kind of giving me the confidence and the drive to do what was right to ensure that in the long term, on the scale that's important, I was going to be happy. I was going to be productive. I was going to be pursuing the values that will give me the kind of life I wanted, 
rather than, you know, sloughing away as a miserable lawyer. <laughs> All right. Well, let's then, let's then bounce the same question over to Martin, because I think you're going to have a very different answer to this uh, around around you. And it's actually for, for, you know, for somebody that, that I would count Martin as a friend, I haven't ever seen your ego pop up. It's, ne it's never been there. But you talk about one thing that surprised me, one quote that you that you had was, I still spend too much time checking how popular my social posts have been. I, I don't see that in you. You hide it well. But so so talk to me about whether any moments where ego, you had a, a moment of enlightenment where you thought, I need to really get this under control. I think oof, yeah, there's, there's a lot in, into this uh, this question. But if I start more global aspect of it, because uh, like Joe started, yeah, it, it's a drive. It's like for me, the thing is being exposed to, let's say, top of the shelf in terms of, uh, of high performance, academia, all the, the people that you work with, they have already used their ego to be where they are. So they already used the, the positive of it because without it, they would not have achieved what they had. So the ego is already volume, is already turned on. So on that, I agree with George. But because the volume is so high, they probably don't dial down enough because they're already in, in, in the zone. And it's just incredible how all the time in those environments, you see the others just... And, and actually, you remember when I sent you the, the inter, those interviews that you feel in about that are the base of the book, the, the project was ego f ups that was the entry because that that was my the, the thing is i needed to clarify i have an understanding why do people shoot themselves a bullet in the foot while keeping the dial that loud all the time so you're trying to discuss a, a rehab session you just come to your can't talk to your colleague because he's not ready to listen because of of the, the situation you're in a conference, you're there to defend your, your research, not to present, you know? So all the time you are in this environment where you have to, to fight, you just can't collaborate with people because they are, they are close-minded, they, they, they don't need you, they know, it, they know it all. So that's really the base and, and the, the, the struggle. So I've been so exposed to those particular behavior that kind of shaped me from the start. You know, you said, you just, what I'm seeing every day, I just don't want to be like that. So maybe when you say I'm hiding it well, of course, because I don't want to behave like the people have been surrounded. But, but again, I know that happens often. And that was the last part of your question is you don't know how hurt I have been that many times when people question my work. And this is where if you have a bit more balanced ego, you accept better the critique. That then the soul level, you just get the critique in your face, hurts a lot. And then it's how you, you, you react and behave afterwards. If you keep it like you, you keep some anger, you keep this is then you are not controlling enough and it becomes counterproductive. But again, as I said, with uh, the situation where it was hurting a lot, but I said, oh, fair enough, I'm going to use that just to proving wrong. And it's, so that, that's that's excellent because then you use it as a strength to do to do more. But the situation where you just cannot really handle the critique happens every single day. You watch a football game or any more, even more in football the player that is substituted at the, I don't know, minute 75, of course, he's not happy. And of course, he's just, and he's going to make it so the media, they're going to show that he's not happy. And then he won't, he, he will, I don't know, kick the, give a kick in the bench or make sure like, okay, that's because of maybe his willingness to play everything. On one side, it's positive because that really, again, help him to be and to do what he does. But the next day, this should be forgotten. That you're back in working, and, and, and working to be ready and performant for the next game. But many times you see those players, they, they missed, or they did not, or they were not even selected. For a week, they, 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 they're going to be having a bad attitude because they're still eating that, processing that in their mind. Ah, oh, did that select me, substitute me? And you see that so much. And you say, come on, guys, just, just be more intelligent than that. But you think his e in that respect, in that example, the, his ego is still turned up too loud. Exactly. That's a great example that someone that's just come off the field and doesn't want to, didn't want to come off and everything's feeling as though they're, they're out to get him and that and it affects training and it affects the balance of the changing room and the culture for the next few days. You're seeing that on the floor as a practitioner. How do you help him change, turn that volume down? 
it's more or less talking this this story happened to me two weeks ago and it's like like, like this player not selected for a champions league game for three days he doesn't want to say hello he just looks like he, he lost uh, he lost uh, his family i went to see him on day two and i said just stop that but stop why i said you have you see how you behave you didn't shake my hand you don't look people in the eye you just you everything everything is wrong the the temperature of the pasta are wrong the the color of the locker room everything is wrong because you're pissed and where are we going you think you're going to play next week you're going to uh, not next week in two days you're going to play you think the attitude you have no one wants to select you so you have to change yeah but i should have played yes you should have played i agree with you and i'm glad you're so pissed because that means you really want to play the game because you believe you're good but stop it man. next game next day he came big smile high five you talk about it in the book actually and as do a lot of people about having those difficult conversations you know i think we've all we all were asked about how we dealt with confrontation and there's a good example of having an awkward conversation would you have had that if you had did you feel you knew the player well enough to have that or you just knew that that was the right intervention to have with that player it's difficult i think with players it's always easier because you know where people are going they want to play so you cannot really get it wrong then the the approach the way you talk to them that's your experience the feeling the relationship you have had or not but you know where it's going it's about being selected and playing the problem is with staffs when you have those conversations because you don't know where they want to go they want the instagram the the the, the bonus because they still want to win because they have a bonus they want just to to look good or so this is way harder because you don't know which path they are on and then which is the approach to to take you had a, a question that you asked yourself a couple of times um as a when you're at psg the additional bench for the champions league match you know do, do, do you want to go onto that bench because you want to see the match better or because it's a better place for you to be seen did you always ask your question in the moment for that yes what was your answer normally the, the thing is when I started with uh, with Paris, I was a bit naive to this kind of like you, you don't know the story about the additional bench that is just on the side of the official bench, but this bench is a bit closer. You don't even know about that. So if you're not among the five technical staff, as has never been, you're not on the bench. And then you sit where you can, depending on your duties during the game. You have to you sit closer to the locker or not because you know. And then first of first championship game, oh. Team manager, hey Martin, you're on the additional bench. So what is this bench? And and it's raining. He said, I don't want to sit on this bench. It's raining. It's on the on the side of the pitch. Why go? And then oh, you don't want to go on the additional bench. But imagine the favor we're giving to you to be there. And I'm like, no, I'd rather sit with uh, my colleagues and we can have a chat, come on the game together. And again, he said it's not raining. And like everyone, like, oh, Martin, he got the, the privilege to sit on the, and he doesn't go on that bench. I say, okay, I better go because otherwise I'm going to look like a, so I went. And then I started to understand how important to be on that, to be on that bench. So I kept, I kept, kept going because I had to. It's part of the, the process, the hierarchy, the, who cares? Who cares? What sort of bench were you on when you once had a, a player that you rehabbed? Spent a lot of time rehabbing really well. He comes back, scores a goal. Well, you tell the rest of the story. That was, I don't know, I think I was at the club for a month. So everything, like it's, uh, you know, Alice in Wonderland, everything is new because it's so special. And of course, you put so much work into this rehab. You think about everything. And then when the guys come in, you say, Oof, every, every stride he does, Oof, I hope everything is fine. Everything is fine. Comes in, bam, scores. Like, uh, yeah, it's bit And yeah, so he runs towards, start to high five some of his colleagues. And I'm on not this additional bench, but another <laughs> one. So I'm running, I'm running toward him and he just passed by and he ignores me completely. And I'm just embracing the wind. <laughs> oh, man. And then I, I just, I think I pretend that I'm just going to pick up a bottle <laughs> in the ground so that I look, I look, I'm, look like I'm busy doing something else. But he said, okay. And then just go back. Hopefully nobody saw no, nobody saw me. Okay, I collect this bottle, and he said, oh, "That was in my face." And I said, "Fair enough." In the end, I did my job. He did his job. What did I expect? That we're gonna be friends? Of course not. So in the end, fine. But last time I ran towards someone after a goal for sure. 
<laughs> but the thing is, this is the job is not about that. That's not in the job description. But when you put your heart and your energy and your work for a month with someone, you just don't even think about that. It comes naturally. It's organic. You just want high five as well because you feel part of it. Yeah. And do you think the player ever, did that player ever say thanks to you publicly for that? Or did they feel, well, that's the job that you're doing. It's an expectation. Yeah, I would say the large majority just expect it's part of the, the package and the job. So why would they say thank you for something that you are meant to do anyway? My counter would be to that, that some of the, the, the better players, better athletes that I've worked with, they are the ones that will, that will appreciate the people around them. They understand that it, you know, it takes a village to, to get an, a single athlete to be their best version. And you said it, uh, just a little bit earlier, Martin, that most players, anything that's going to help them get better, they're onto. But at Paris Saint-Germain, you know, you had many superstars that you that you worked with, and we we might, I'm sure, it'll be difficult to not have a conversation around ego, and not at some point talk about Zlatan Ibrahimovic. But I didn't want to talk about him now. You had Kylian Mbappe when he first came in um, as a bright young star, and you said that immediately. He was see, seemed like he was more mature than his years, really easy to get on, on with, a team player, but he wasn't listening to anything that you wanted to, to give him to make him better. And I suddenly got transported back to Fiji because you went all Fijian on him, on how you managed to approach, find a solution to the key to him understanding how you could help him. On the, this specific example with a, with a player like him, it's, and again, it's impossible because, of course, he changed a lot and now he's highly professional, but I would never, never put myself in the center of his transformation because it's been the work of an entire team, both inside and outside of the club. I've been a part of, as uh, the other 30 staff have all been a part of, some of them a bit more than, than others. But still, on my own business and trying to get some, some quick buy-ins or I got just lucky to, to be able to, to chat with his mom by, by chance. And we were like, he was, he was six or seven at, the, at school, you know, like the, the parents are meeting the teachers. And because of his family, he's so behind him. They want the best for him. They want to know if he's doing well or not or the thing that he could improve. And... That was such a, an unexpected conversation I had with his mom, but he changed the whole dynamic. It was pretty, pretty interesting. That's the story with his mom, but also the fact that you can tell that, and as you said, the best players, the really top, top guys, they, are not, they don't have this entitlement. They don't have this oversized ego attitude. Otherwise, they would not be what they are, for sure. So they, they, know, they, know the, the, they understand the volume, those guys. No, that's a, it's a it's a great it's a great story. Um, just a question, but to both of you. But if I can start with George, maybe that Lee Nobes. Lee's currently the head of head physio at Liverpool and was at Manchester City. Another guy that that I know pretty well and is is an in, in, incredible practitioner. He talks about how occasionally you might encounter someone that's got a big ego that are irrational. So whatever you're trying to say to them plus a big ego that's ramped up and it's stuck at high volume. Have you got any advice on how you can deal with those people? In those situations, the irrationality is a harder, is a harder nut to crack than the size of the ego. Because, you know, someone who is just going to be closing themselves off to rationality, to argumentation, to counterpoint, to opening their, their eyes just that little bit extra amount that might let a new ray of sunlight in, that's harder to overcome, I think, than, you know, how, how loud their volume is. And I think, you know, all you can really do sometimes, and maybe, you know, in these really impossible situations is let reality take its course. You know, one thing I've, I've learned and one thing going back to how I define ego as the reality check is that at the end of the day, reality always wins. You can be as irrational as you want to, but it's going to catch up with you. And as coaches who have a limited amount of time to work with athletes, we just hope that it catches up with you on a time scale that doesn't derail your career or doesn't lead to any sort of long-term effects. The best that we can do is try to continue looking for those little openings in their personality, their triggers, if you want to call it that, where we can 
meet them at whatever shred of rationality they have left and slip in behind the loud ego and explain what we can. And it's frustrating because especially a lot of times, you know, we're, we're I mean, all three of us are going to be much older than the athletes we work with. So we know where this road is going for them. And we understand the value of learning the hard way. But, you know, why, why would we want to watch somebody make a mistake that we know how we can avoid? The best we can do is explain that to them in the best way we can take advantage of whatever motivations they let on to, whatever rationality they let on to, and be persistent. You know, I, I think there's probably, a, I mean, there is a, a Martin's Lawton story that kind of taps into this. And Lawton is, you know, Mark can tell that story if you want, and it's, it's right in the first part of the book. But Martin didn't compromise. He didn't throw up his hands. You know, Martin knew what was right. Martin had that sense of science backing him up, which gave him the, the ego, the foundation, the confidence to prove a point. That's all anyone can do. Learning what not to do is as important to practitioners as learning what to do, because there are so many ways you can make things worse and often only one way to make things better. And so you just have to, sometimes you just have to not make things worse. Don't fight a irrationally loud ego with a more irrational louder ego because now no one's going to win now you've both seeded the field of reality and you're just going to end up with everybody hurt everybody suffering everybody further back than they were martin george teed you up a little bit there for that first story around zlatan it's i would say again it was the first time i was exposed to this kind of reaction but with the experience i've seen this happening often you come to someone, in this case, it's Zatan, and you say, okay, we believe, I said we because there's a lot of people having the same thoughts, that to improve your recovery or to accelerate your recovery, you should probably drink these types of shakers, protein, BCAA, or whatever, a lot of things, that the, the whey protein that have been proven to, to help rebuild your muscle and, and so on. And you go to this to this player because you act, what he does is actually different than what it's supposed to be optimal. And then in this in this story with with Zlatan, that's the funny part. And then I'll elaborate on the rest. Like Zlatan just told me, yeah, but just I just want you to bring me what I want, not what I need. And then if, what do you say to that? Okay, well let me think. Uh, by the way, what do you want then? Okay, well, let's 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 organize that. And then you have to realize, okay, so they're not ready. They're not ready to listen because they have their own beliefs. And those beliefs are based on the experience. They, they have been very successful with this. Another stuff that Satan would always tell me is that he had scored at this time 350 goals, or I don't know how many, without my advices. So again, what do you say to that? You say, yeah, fine, fine, fair enough. You could say, oh, you may have scored 20 more maybe. Or you just shut your mouth and you just agree that he's been successful without you. So, but in this case, it's not, it's not like um, when you, like George was commenting when it's completely irrational and there is no, there's no violence into that. They just say what they think and you have to accept what they think and you have to respect them for who they are because they are great, great champions. So fair enough. They've been successful without those BCAA. Perfect. So maybe there's something I should, I should also, I can also think and take from that is that you can still play 45, 50 games a year or 60 games a year without BCAA, which is very good because it just tells the, the research. Again, that's the limit. Of course, BCAA should be, or whey protein should help, but there are people, they do it without. This is a fact and you just have to accept that. Now, is it worth the fight to try to change the routines for someone that is already 30 plus? Then you start to build up your argumentation about the cost and the benefits. And there's no right or wrong. It's just, again, a case-by-case -case, uh, approach. And how do you solve this equation? More talking, more discussion. By the way, I understand your opinion. I know you've been successful. I know you never had that. But look at the evidence showing this, this, this. Those players are taking it and they're happy with. Don't want to try it, just don't want to, to give it a go once, try it. Okay, other flavor, don't like chocolate, panilla. Okay, let's go banana. Let's buy banana for you to try. Works, what do you think? Ah, not too bad. Okay, 
and you just build, you build, you build, you build. And sometimes it works, sometimes it does not. Fine. This comes back to something you said earlier, Ben, that, you know, with players, you know, they, we know what their motivation is. You know, we know why the player coming off the pitch in the 75th minute is upset. He wants to play. We know what it is that a player wants. He wants to get better. He wants to play more minutes. So I'm not saying that dealing with Zlatan is easy, but you, you know pretty clearly what he wants. And to Martin's point earlier, and to your point, Ben, you don't always know that with the staff members. There are so many overlapping and contradictory and idiosyncratic motivations that make those conversations so much harder when you're in the back room than when you're in the, in the locker room or on the training ground. We're lucky in sports that we have such objective measurements in terms of what our ultimate successes are. We want our athletes to win. We want them to not get hurt. We want our teams to win. Easy, end of the day. Any other line of work, is it ever going to be that objectively clear where we're going to have such objective quantitative measurements of our individual success, our front people success, and our top line success? Probably not. The fundamental for me creating a sustainable high performance environment you must have collaboration and you must have ability to feel selfless you know to everybody however then there are those moments where as you move up that head coach needs to be able to turn up the volume to have that decision making that's backed up with fact now that's a difficult that's a difficult journey for a high performance system to to navigate on a daily basis being able to go from selfless to turning up the volume to having a hierarchy where, you know, the, the buck may finish with a head coach, but also knowing that everybody's feeling that they've got some autonomy. It's a convoluted landscape. I think in any high-performance environment, sports or otherwise, a big part of being a manager, but also a big part of being the best professional you can be and of putting your individual career on the right path is reducing the daylight between your goals and the team's goals. So that being the best possible sports scientist means helping my team win, helping my team lift that trophy. Being the best possible front end developer in a tech company means we have a better IPO. Being the best possible junior counsel means we win our litigation. That when, when management, both across people, but within people is able to do that, now you're going to have that sustainable, high functioning environment, because no matter how, quote, small your job sees, you're getting a reward just as big as anyone else's because you maximized your role for the big prize that anyone in your line of work should want to go to. It's not always the case, though, that athletes see it as linear as you know winning is is you know what equals success you had a story martin about in the change rooms after a, a loss and it was you had to go in the toilet to check their social media um because they were taking photographs that was gaining them likes and suddenly they were into that and that was they weren't talking about the defeat or how they were going to get better. They were talking about the photographs and social media. That must have been very difficult at the time to to not say anything. Sure, but I think in this case you just you can't say anything because you're not even supposed to. Like I think it's a way to even put yourself at a lower level because like that shows you following their their stuff. So I think you just leave it, but that just gives you a better understanding on what's happening in their mind. So how does that juxtapose with the, the other story that you talked about where um, they were playing in the changing rooms, uh, football tennis, and you did intercede when they were, they were doing stuff that you shouldn't do. So does, do, do both stories cross over into to what I would say the standard you walk past is the standard that you become? So there's the first story where you didn't intercede with the social media, but there's a second story that a lot of people would have left alone but you did have a very very difficult conversation with that player if you don't mind telling that story and then how that unraveled and how it made some change yeah and actually i have a third one that happened again very recently as well it's around the same thing about as you said intervening or no saying something or not when there's something wrong and it goes against your standard and your values i think what makes the difference between the story of posting stuff instagram after a defeat 
where you should probably not doing it versus playing football, football tennis in the locker and just ruining all the supplements on the table because the ball just bounced on it and don't giving a, of just collecting the stuff and just leaving, leaving the mess. On the, the example, or could be uh, using the phone uh, in during, uh, during a gym session, for example, that you, of course, should not. What makes me acting or not, if I have been seen by the others that I have seen, then you have to act. Once you, once you see, you cannot unsee. Exactly. They saw me, they saw that I saw. Okay, I need to say something. They, no, one, no one noticed that I was looking at the pictures and Instagram. First level of, shall you, shall, you have to say something in the moment, but also choosing the moment. Because in this case, if I would not say anything with the, 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 the football tennis in the locker room, I would be seen as I'm permissive. You can just mess up the locker room. And so I had to say something. Case of the using the phone during a gym. Difficult. Important player, senior player. You don't want to be a pain and in front of everyone, go and tell him to put the phone off because that's, that's not nice with him as well because he needs, he, he probably wants to be able to do his own thing because of the status he has. So you're kind of rubbing, killing his status in front of the others if you tell something. So you just pretend you've seen, you, you, it's just like a, it's a game of, okay, don't worry, I've seen it, but let me deal with that later. And later on, you dismantle the situation with both parties. You go to the young guys, you said, yes, I know, I didn't say anything, but I'll tell you why. Then you go to the other guys, you say, hey, come on, you, what I have to say to the young guys? Ah, sorry, okay, well, please don't make that happen twice. Okay, thank you, sorted. So it's another level of, 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 of working with that. Martin, what advice then would you have to somebody that's just starting out and has seen those two things happen? It's the react, you have to react in, a third of a second, of course, and it comes through the confidence you have in yourself versus how, how far you want to put your value and this kind of integrity in the mix. If you believe that you're going to gain even more respect by saying something, that's the perfect occasion to do it. But if you feel that whatever you say, you don't have the respect anyway, or that would just go like, a, maybe don't. Don't, 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 don't fight at the moment and just keep that for, for another time. I don't think it's, as I said, uh, George, before, there's, of course, no, no, no magic uh, approach. You know, you have, it's that, this is really an, an experience-based approach of seeing those things repeating and trialing and error. Okay, the way I managed that one this time was pretty poor. That was poorly perceived. I better say nothing. Or because of, it's a day after a defeat, maybe then you might be able to put your standards a little bit up because you can still back the overall behavior in the locker that can actually be replicated on the field. So that may be a good day, but there are other days, everything is going right. People are, are pretty self-confident because everything, they feel strong. That may be not the day to start to bargain because they just mess up a shaker. And this is the experience and you have to have already gained a little bit of respect to be able just to stand up and say something. Like if it was day one, I would, uh, for sure I would have not said anything because you have to start on, 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 on sort, some sorts of, of basements. But then there is also always a dynamic group versus individual. If ever you, have, you say something in front of the group is because you feel that you have to say, but I will always go back to the individual and explain why you did that, debrief, are you fine? Okay, like maybe I, I put you up in front of everyone, but I had to do it. You understand why? You, put, you made me uncomfortable doing this because of your behavior. I have to justify and do something that I don't want to do. And it's bad for you. It's bad for me also. Ah, sorry, I didn't see that. Yeah, of course. Okay. Why don't we put some light on, on this and, and changing rooms? Because, you know, there are places where we've probably all got some amazing memories in positive ways. And one of the stories that shone very brightly in, I think, around the middle of the, of the book was about another player that was at Paris Saint-Germain, now is at Manchester United, Edison Cavani. And you had had this amazing win against Barca, 4-0 at home in the Champions League. And it looked like you were you know, flying into the to the next round and you went to the no camp and, and lost six goals to one. And coming home, 
rather than dispersing straight away, while Edison made a, a detour, right? And this is still a, like every time I'm, I'm telling this story, I have a shivers because it's just been so incredible. So yeah, instead of going straight back to, to his car, like 4 or 5 a.m., went to the locker room, rubbed some tape in the physio room. And, you know, in the locker, you have, uh, like in every single, single locker or club, you always have uh, motivation, quotes, words, ambition, victory, and so on. And he wrote himself the word, the word uh, humility in tape because he felt that collectively, us staff included, we had missed, of course, a lot of humility in between the matches. And um, yeah, that could partially explain the, 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 the results. So having this humility to write that, and it's, it's just incredible, incredible. George, you've got um, something that I like to do as well. I like to know origins of words and humility um, you talk about in the book from the Latin. Why don't you continue the story? Because I think you frame it really nicely on a lot of listeners understanding what humility, particularly in a sporting context, means. I am fascinated by the English language. That's why I love writing. And I love going back to finding out what did words originally mean and how do we use them today? And particularly in the context of the book, you know, one of the things that amazed me was we had 110 practitioners giving us 110 definitions of ego. And Martin and I had different definitions of ego. So I was already thinking to myself, like, how is it, like, how did the words that we use around this topic shape our thoughts and our behaviors and our philosophies? And so humility is one of those ones where everybody uses it, but what are we really, what are we really trying to convey with it? And what does it mean? What do people hear? as opposed to what are people saying? And I think many times when people talk about humility, it's almost self-abasement. It's groveling, be humble. You know, it, it's kneeling, it's being down on yourself. And I'm like, I, I just can't see Edinson Cavani groveling to do what he's done for so long. He's always has to have a very positive sense of ego, pride, sense of self and confidence. So how does humility connect with that? How do we... How do we reconcile that? And so I started looking at what does the word humility really mean? And, you know, humility is not about groveling and self-abasement any more than ego or pride properly understood is about boasting or, you know, loudly proclaiming your awesomeness. Humility is, you know, at the lat it comes from the Latin word hummus, meaning earth. Uh, humilis was the, you know, the Latin and Middle English um, version of it, I believe. And humilis meant of the earth, connected to the earth. So what might humility mean in that context? Well, it means staying on the ground, keeping your feet on the ground. As I read through these definitions and thinking about Edison Cavani and football players in particular, I, was, I thought of the painting, The School of Athens, where Aristotle, one of my favorite philosophers, has his hand palmed down, things of the earth, things that are real, objective reality, and his teacher Plato is pointing up into the clouds for the forms. You know, this world of ideas that is distinct from and almost uh, that, that's separate from the reality that we know here on earth. And I, I was thinking about it, I said, you know, Cavani, when calling his players to humility, he wanted them to have their feet on the ground, the literal ground of the football pitch. God knows where their heads were that day. Maybe their heads were in the next stages of the knockout round. Maybe their heads were on the international break. Maybe their heads were postseason in Dubai. Wherever, wherever they were, that Edison Cavani identified this lack of mental presence, they were not on that pitch at Camp Nou, feet on the ground where the ball was going in their net six times. So when we talk about humility, it's connecting us to external reality. It's saying, keep your feet on the ground. Chasing the ego doesn't make you happy. Chasing the ego and the logo, because that one feeds uh, the logo, feeds the ego. Chasing the logo does not make you happy because of all the constraints that you have and the battles that you have to go through. So there is one side that we try not to talk too much about, which are the, the difficulties of elite sports, the, the not many holidays, uh, the rhythm. Of course, that's a part that's interact with your personal life but of course we have to keep that out because that's not of course the, the topic of the book but it's more those battles those 
irrelevant discussion you have talking about the, 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 the difficulty of having often to compromise your integrity, to deal with difficult people that in the end makes you realize that you're not enjoying the day. So if you're not enjoying the day, even still looks like you're doing the job of your dream job, your, the job you always wanted, you say that there's a point, you say, what I'm doing here? Um, and that's, that's, putting, that's putting back your happiness into the mix before or ahead or on the side uh, of, the, of, of, of the ego. Happiness is, uh, is the, the word, being happy. You talked about leaving PSG and now there's a process that you're going to before perhaps you go back into another big challenge. Do you mind maybe just adding some some meat to that? Because I think a lot of people will resonate. Well, they want to leave and they perhaps want to get their energy back to what they do. Uh, I'd love to know your angle on leaving somewhere that to a lot of the outsiders will look like, you know, you are at one of the best football clubs in the world, one of the best sports organisations in the world, but you decide to leave on your own terms. And what next? I think it's very. it looks very parallel, very similar to the past you went through from England to Fiji. On my side, I cannot say it's a complete, I didn't press the button exit alone. It was a part of a long process and things that should, should be changed and so on. So I was probably, I was probably, I was pushed as well to make this decision because the things were not going well. But anyway, so that's, that's details. But thankfully it did happen because it's also very difficult to, to live completely on your proper terms when you have such a position in such a, such a place. So, so the universe helped me to make this decision and that things happen. The universe made things that it was too hard and too complex. And then, okay, let's, let's, let's go. So I'm thankful to the universe for that. Then how do you recover from that? How do you get organized? You put happiness, integrity before everything. And the logo will come only after. And if it's not the logo, fair enough. I want first to be to enjoy the day and and do my job properly. That comes through personal work on my skills, my my vision, my mission, all these kind of things that a lot of us have done when you go through a bit this this self introspection process, understanding yourself better, the thing you like, the thing you can accept, the things for sure you want don't want to accept, and you just kind of clarifies what you want to do and where you want to go. And uh, that comes through consulting. Job I've done with uh, Kitman Lab has been incredible because you have uh, way more autonomy on what you do. You work almost on the things you want to do. And now working part-time uh, with, a, with a club in France, I have this incredible freedom of being three days, two, three days at the club only. So I still have this ability to Come, bring something, bring some energy, bring ideas, but don't get the, the entire complexity of the daily job. And I really realized that during the, this year and a half, I was out of a club that I really managed to understand what I really wanted to be happy, but also to be even more, more efficient. So it's, but it's, it's very individual, very, very individual. And tied in with that, Martin, is that you are... Your ego is has got a good role to play in all of this because you've put the volume at the level that's making it the right volume for for where you want to be right now. To be happy. To be happy. It can sometimes be forgotten. Amazing, really, as that ultimately does deliver as humans how we want to feel on a daily basis, happy and fulfilled. Chasing the ego and the logo nearly always doesn't make you happy, certainly in the long term, and Martin summed it up beautifully. Those battles you have in your career, managing your ego and those around you can make all the difference around doing a job that ends up burning or breaking or just blunting you to one that brings happiness and fulfilment. Having worked with Martin, I can tell you he is world-class, like properly world-leading. We didn't even touch on his fitness test that he invented and is the go-to for nearly every top football team. He didn't name it after himself like many do. No ego involved there. But even Martin had to go through a personal journey to get to where he is today. He spent time reflecting and understanding himself and what's really important. 
It was also great to meet George for the first time and understand why Martin found him the perfect sparring partner for the e-goal book. I love George's views on breaking the ego down, giving us some practical tools for how to deal with the ego and also flipping the ego and, and how it can be positively used in the right scenarios. It's not about having posters in change rooms saying no room for the ego here. It's all about turning the volume up and turning the volume down. Take some time out in your day now and again to do some objective thinking like Martin around where you are now and where you want to be. Ask yourself a very simple question. Am I happy? Let it sit for a while. Drop into your senses and just unravel. See where it lands. There's nothing wrong with that process to nudge yourself into being at your best and fundamentally that does link to your happiness. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and feel free to drop me a message on social media and everything we talked about or referenced in this chat we will make sure are in the show notes and you can find those at benryan.co.uk forward slash podcast. Now, a link to buying the book eGoals will also be in these show notes, but just jump on Amazon and grab a copy there. You really won't regret it. eGoals can also be found on social media. It's got its own handle at eGoalsBook on Instagram. And Martin is on both Instagram and Twitter with the same handle at Mart, M-A-R-T, one Bush, B-U-C-H. Now, George well, he's probably the most sensible of all of us and isn't on social media. But through the Eagles page on Instagram, you can reach out to him too. You can find all the previous shows on the usual platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, Amazon Music and Google Podcasts. If this episode whets your appetite to listen to more discussions with great people that work at the very highest level of sport, then why not listen to New York Knicks' Erwin Valencia's episode in Series 1? As always, I'd love to have your feedback about how we're doing on the show and leaving a review on Apple is one way to do that and share with a wider audience. Thanks for all of those that have done that and also for the tons of positive notes we got around last week's show with Heather Fisher. This has been the Ben Ryan Podcast. Thanks for listening and I look forward to bringing you another great chat next Wednesday. <laughs>